Good morning. My name is Ross Westcott, and I am one of the elders here at Gladstone New Life. I'm also a musician, New Life in general. So I have a couple roles. Um, one, one of the roles that I have is uh, also something that, as I look around the room, only one person here knows that I do. And I am a softball umpire. Is that a coach? Is there a softball coach out there who's booing an umpire? Anyway, I've, I've been an umpire for 21 years. Prior to that, I, had, I was 20 years on the field playing, coaching. I played uh, uh, fast pitch, slow pitch, co-ed, and I coached women's softball. And then the body gave out, and I went to umpiring. And then the body gave out, so I'm behind the scenes now. But one of, the, one of the things I had when, when I was actively umpiring was I got selected to go to a national tournament in Aurora, Colorado. I had other selections, but they were here in state. But one of the things that they do when they send you out of state is that the, the local association selects your roommate. And so I went to Aurora, to Aurora and uh, found my roommate, and we went up to the room, and we selected which side we were going to occupy. I gave him first choice. And then he decided that he wanted to go socialize with, with some umpires that he knew, and I finished unpacking. Uh, afterward, I thought that was a little bit odd, so afterward I went to the front desk and so I could leave some of my valuables with the front desk. I was a little uncomfortable leaving my stuff in the room with someone who I just met and who I thought didn't look very trustworthy. Now I know that's a bad thing to say about a fellow umpire, but we just met and didn't know him, so I was going to be safe. Now the clerk accepted the responsibility when I went to him and for my valuables and he remarked, oh, it's okay. I'll be happy to take care of these items for you. Your roommate was just here, and he did the same thing for the same reason. <laughs> uh, I felt small at that point, and throughout the week that we were there in Aurora, I got to know him, and I made a wrong assumption. But it's interesting that in thinking about that, for some reason, it was easier for me to jump into a negative conclusion about my roommate than it was to assume the best about him. It was just easier. And when I did this, I ascribed to him bad intentions and evil purposes that didn't turn out to be true. Not at all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we come here to learn about your gospel, learn about more of what it takes to be a disciple of yours. Um, it's a lifelong learning. I've certainly learned mine and uh, hopefully that in uh, telling your word today, we can move another step further to being better, more pure disciples of you. And we ask these things in your son's name, amen. Now the Sermon on the Mount is an amazing message. Uh, so far, Jesus has explained the principles and values of the kingdom of God, how to relate to God in describing the interior life of the disciple. Everything we've learned right up in, in the last two chapters is 
how we behave internally, the things we do internally. For example, Jesus talked about how we ought to give and how we should fast. Sorry. I know we needed tape. And how we should pray and how not to be a hypocrite. About every two or three verses, don't be a hypocrite. These things have more to do with the interior life, which is especially important, but that's not all there is to being a disciple of Christ. It's also about how we treat other people. And that transition occurs right here at the beginning of chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, where he starts talking about how we relate and treat other people. And here's what that says. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Don't give dogs what is holy, and do not, do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. In other words, what this is saying is believers must discern their own faults before examining the faults of others. Now, I don't know if you have a favorite Bible verse. I imagine most of you do. But usually they're the ones that have a special meaning. Maybe they came to you when uh, you turned your life over to Christ. Maybe later on after that, as you're doing some study, you, you found a verse that really spoke to you. I have to admit, I don't have one. What I like to say is, is that my favorite verse is the one I'm studying right now. Because as I, as I study the word and I see a favorite verse, I go, oh, that's a great one. I ought to hold on to that one and then a week later, oh, this is a good one. Well, what do I do with that one? No, I'll, I'll stick with this one. And, and then a couple weeks later, oh, here's another great passage. So I just don't bother. It's, it would be too much work. So I claim the Bible. That, that usually lets me off the hook. And then I can go anywhere and be where I like. However... There's nothing more dangerous than misunderstanding the truth of Scripture that it's giving to me or giving to us. There are many ways that we can misrepresent and misunderstand truth, but it's, if it's with Scripture, it can be by memorizing only a single verse or a part of one. Often when we do this, we leave our good intentions without the context, and it can get us into trouble. Let me illustrate. You could memorize verses in Proverbs, man, probably get by okay, by cutting and pasting and doing slice and dice on Proverbs. They pretty much stand alone. Uh, it's not quite the case with the rest of Scripture, however. Take Psalm 53. It says, there is no God. It does. Now, if you left it at that, you'd be in trouble. The world does that, and it, it gets it all wrong. But if you memorize the whole verse, 
It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. <sighs> okay. Then you would get it right, and you would not get into trouble. You could do the same thing with Psalm 14.1, which says the same thing. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Here's another one. Bet you didn't know there was more. If you just memorize the first part of 1 Corinthians 10.23 that says, all things are lawful, you'd end up in trouble. However, if you memorize the whole verse that says, all things are lawful or permissible, but not all things are helpful and not all things build up, then you'd get it right and you'd stay out of trouble. How many want to stay out of trouble? Uh, most of you. <laughs> Here's another. If you memorized Matthew 7, 1 that says, judge not, and left it at that, just like the world does, you'd end up in trouble. You need the entire context, context for those words to make sense in terms of what Jesus was really saying. Then, you would get it right, and you'd stay out of trouble. It's that context that we're going to look at today. Now, we've all heard people say, you cannot judge me, or stop judging me. Or like I heard one lady say on Judge Judy, it's not a whole lot of daytime TV, that's, but Judge Judy I watch. <laughs> not religiously, so to speak, um, but I occasionally watch her. There was a lady who walked off and says, you're kind of judgy, aren't you? That's her job. Well, then they also go on to say, I know it's true because it's in the Bible somewhere. That's what the world says. Don't judge me. I know it's in the Bible. Don't ask me where. Well, it's right here. All those words come from a worldly perspective. They kind of sound biblical, but they aren't. Kind of. It's extracted. It's words that have no context, no meaning behind it at all. The world translated is, don't you dare judge me. God will get you for that. And they hold that over your head. But that's taken way out of context and misses the point altogether by, by fracturing and rupturing the meaning. When I was growing up and probably similar to many of you. There was a cartoon show that I enjoyed watching. It was Rocky and Bullwinkle. Everybody remember Rocky and Bullwinkle? Yes. And while I thought that the conflict between the heroes, Rocky and Bullwinkle, and the villains, Boris and Natasha, uh, was funny, what I really looked forward to was the transition segments the writers used between the scenes. Do you remember Fractured Fairy Tales? Minor part of the show, biggest draw for me. Fractured Fairy Tales would, not be, would be a short clip that would retell a famous fairy tale, but with a twist. There would be something wrong in the retelling of the story. The new story would be slightly off from the original, but if you knew the tale, you'd recognize that it was different. If you did not know that fairy tale, yeah, you wouldn't be able to pick it up and you just say, what are they doing? 
And I, I share this illustration because today's American culture has summarized our passage in three words. You can't judge. The world cannot tell the difference between the original and the fractured because they don't know what the original is or its context or what it really means or what Jesus meant when he was saying those things. And we find that no matter what position we have on any topic, pick a topic. Take any one of the, the hot social topics today. There is someone on the other side that will be screaming at you saying, you cannot judge me. The irony is that some care extraordinarily little for God's word or God's kingdom when they're screaming that. Yet they have suddenly become enlightened theologians and attempt to use these words to shame us. Don't judge is their mantra, and Christians who don't get on board with the promoted position get thrown aside just as judgmental hypocrites. That's the label. So what we are really seeing in the world is just a fractured fairy tale and a complete misunderstanding of what Jesus meant when he said, judge not. Hopefully by the end, we'll have a better understanding of what that is. The world, and unfortunately some Christians, translate judge not as saying that we cannot make any moral judgment whatsoever at any time based on the belief that Jesus is condemning any kind of assessment or judgment. That's the belief. Now, if Jesus meant that, if he really meant that, he contradicts himself a few verses later by asking us to measure our life and the life of others using the figure of a tree bearing fruit. Now, John's going to cover this more in more detail in a few weeks, but this is, we're going to read starting in math, verse 15 of Matthew 7. That says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That requires a moral judgment. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes and figs from thistles? That requires a moral judgment. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the, the, the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is out, is cut down, and thrown into the fire. That requires a moral judgment. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Again, requiring a moral judgment. So, can you imagine a point where Jesus was letting the scribes and Pharisees have it between the eyes, beating them about their head and shoulders, and hearing them say to him, Jesus, judge not unless you be judged. Of course, he had just said that so they wouldn't have that to read. But can you imagine them saying that to him? Jesus was not making a blanket, a blanket prohibition against all judgment and discernment, just only against those done in self-centered pride. George Horn, Horn an 18th century English churchman, academic writer, and university administrator wrote in his commentary on Psalm 139 that we are neither to hate men on account of their vices they practice or love the vices for the sake of the men who practice them. 
Let's explain that a little bit further. In other words, he was saying that it's possible, and we've heard this before, to love the sinner while hating the sin. While God calls Christians to show unconditional love, he does not call us to show unconditional approval. God does not give us the privilege to hate people who practice a particular sin. Even if those sins are so hateful to our society, we do not have the right to condemn them for the sake of their sin. Condemnation is God's right, not ours. He does it better than we could anyway. But notice the second part of it. He also says, nor are we to love the vices for the sake of the men who practice them. And it's not that we have wiggle room to say, I really like you. I guess I have to like your sin as well. There's no wiggle room on that. The Bible says we can really have a love, care, and compassion for an individual sinner while disapproving of what they do. Think about family members who are doing things that would not be glorifying to God or approved by God, yet we love them as family members, yet we don't approve their sin as well. That's the picture here. What Jesus says here is to not make it a habit of examining the lives of others unless you're willing to have judgment made on you against the same standard. And that's a tough position. Because we're sinners too. We need to have that, that integrity to be able to be judged and should be judged by that biblical standard that we're judging others by. One of the warnings he gives us repeatedly in Matthew 5 through 7 is to avoid hypocrisy. We are not to be hypocrites. We're not to be fakers. We are to be real according to the biblical standard we profess to, to follow. Jesus wants our lives to have integrity. If we say we follow Scripture, let's do it. Give the uh, naysayers no room to call us on it. Now, in our passage, Jesus is driving the point that his followers must discern their own faults before examining the faults of others. Some people have even made it their lifestyle to judge others by their personal standards, which is a complete misreading of Scripture. Few things are more exhausting and debilitating than harsh, unloving criticism. Some of us have had that. It's not fun. Even sadder, it seems that the church is itself full of those who make it a habit of criticism and condemnation. Fortunately, in my opinion, new life is not one of those. But I've heard and seen others where that happens. Some think that their critical spirit is a, spirit is a spiritual gift and exercise that gift regularly by taking aim not only at those outside the church, but those inside as well. We're all prone to excuse our own faults and, magnifying the, and magnify the faults of others. You know how that goes. Here are a few examples. When others are set in their ways, they are obstinate. 
When you are, it's being firm. When they do not like your friends, they show prejudice. When you don't like theirs, you're showing good judgment, right? When they pick out your flaws, they are cranky. When you do it, you're discerning. How about those aimed at church leaders? If they have gray hair, they are too old to be relevant. If, they're, if they are young, they must not have enough experience. If they read from notes, they must be boring. Hopefully I'm trying to not be boring. If they speak extemporaneously, they must not be able to get deep enough and to the point. If they wear youthful clothing, they, they must not understand that trying to be dope is very undope. <clears throat> For those who are older, that reads, they must not understand that trying to be cool is very uncool. And I don't know any other misappropriation of words that I could use there to explain that better, but that's the current thinking of what dope is. Uh, critical spirits have no end to the material that they can draw upon. They draw upon anything, and they do it frequently, and they're just critical. Unfortunately, criticism or opinion giving, or opinion giving, is part of living. It's part of what we it surrounds us all the time. Seems that many people cannot do anything without someone criticizing them, whether walking down the street, playing music. Driving down the road, working a garden, voicing a position, or speaking the word of God, there is always a critical spirit somewhere. Jesus knows, knows our common tendency to justify self and blame others. So he warns us of two dangers. The danger of judging others too critically, and then the danger judging others too indiscriminately. A blanket criticism. Here's what he's saying. Christians are not to severely condemn fellow believers. But neither are they to be simpletons who condone everything. While we are not to go around condemning people, we are to exercise discernment in whatever that looks like. It also does not mean that it is wrong under any circumstances to pass an unfavorable judgment on the conduct and opinions of others. We ought to have decided opinions. Scripture asks us to prove all things and try the spirits. There's a, a reasonable part of thinking there. Depends on what we do with what we learn when we try the spirits. Not passing any moral judgment would make it impossible to condemn error and false doctrine. It would prevent anyone from attempting the office of a minister or a judge. Heresy would flourish Wrongdoing would run rampant, and truth, truth would disappear without a block. In the same way that Jesus says in Matthew 6, 14 to 15, that God will not forgive us if we do not forgive others, so also Jesus says in verse 2 here that if we are harsh in our judgments towards others, we will also have harsh judgments placed against us. But if I haven't made it clear yet, we're not to take the place of God. We aren't God. We're not close. 
God can see the heart, we cannot. So we make our assessments on external things. We have no idea what's going on inside. God does. Now moving on to verses 3 to 5, we see that Jesus gives us this fantastic illustration to understand what he's talking about. Here he says that we are to judge ourselves, starting in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This illustration is splendidly simple, yet supremely specific. We know exactly what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is pointing out the hypocrisy in our judgment towards others when we have our own significant issues for which others should and could judge us. Man, I hate it when it works both ways. And this works both ways. There's something about the way that we operate as humans that it's far easier for us to judge others than it is to judge ourselves, like I did with my fellow umpire. By the way, we got to know one another afterwards, and he wasn't anywhere close to my original assessment to him, and and that was uh, more than 10 years ago, and, and we're still friends. He doesn't know that I put my valuables in with the clerk. I may tell him someday. But that doesn't matter. It may change our relationship. There's something about the way that we operate as humans that is far easier for us to judge others. I already said that, sorry. Uh, Jesus is calling us out. He's calling us out to look at ourselves. We must look at our own sins. We must look at our own hearts. We must judge and examine ourselves. And when we do not do this and focus completely on others, Jesus says that when we do this, we are hypocrites. We are fakers. We're not genuine followers. We cannot see others clearly because we have things that cloud our vision. Here's an example. A young couple moved into a new neighborhood. The next morning, while they were eating breakfast, the young woman saw her neighbor hanging her wash out to dry. Oh, that laundry is not very clean, she said. She doesn't know how to wash her clothes properly. Her husband looked on but remained silent. Every time her neighbor hung her wash out to dry, the young woman repeated her observations about the dirty laundry. About a month later, the woman was surprised to see a clean white wash on the line and said to her husband, look, She learned how to wash. That's amazing. I wonder who taught her this. And the husband said, I got up early this morning and cleaned our windows. (laughs) I'm glad that one went over. (laughs) If we deal with our sins first, we are living the way Jesus tells us to live. We are faithful followers. We clean our own windows first. Notice... Also, that Jesus said that if we do remove the log from our own eye, then we will indeed be able to see 
better to help the person remove the splinter from their, their eye. That's an assistance. That's a moral, discernible judgment that we can step in and help. Let's look at verse 6. Where Jesus tells us that we must use good judgment or discernment. However, this verse, at first glance, seems to be a little out of place from the others. And it says, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Seems a bit odd, but it's going to make a little more sense here in about five minutes. In this verse, Christ tempers these admonitions and shows us the difference between judgment and discernment. We are not to be hypocritical judges, yet we must be able to discern the swine lest we cast our pearls before them. We again have this phrase from the Sermon on the Mount that, post, that most people, not even, even non-Christians, have heard and misuse. But they've heard it. The most common use of it comes from the King James translation, which reads, Cat, do not cast your pearls before swine. That's probably one that we've heard more often. The message is about wasting things of value on those who not only won't appreciate them, but might even be angered by the offer. The long-promised Messiah came to preach that the kingdom of heaven was near during the Sermon on the Mount. Those who believed this and followed him were eager to tell this fantastic news to others, as are some of us. We came to know the Lord. We wanted to tell others about our experience and what happened and the joy that, that came upon our lives. Of course, not everyone believed it. That time or this time, Israel's religious leaders notably would reject Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. What Christ said was true and what he said was incredibly valuable, but the response of these men was rejection and hatred. Now let's get back to the, the dogs and pigs, or chihuahuas and great Pyrenees. You'll understand it. Dogs were scavengers during the time of Jesus. They were not pets. They were more like possums or raccoons. Sorry, dog lovers. They weren't like today's domestic Chihuahua or Great Pyrenees. They were not cute and cuddly, nor large and lovable. You didn't keep them in your house, and you certainly wouldn't pay $1,500 for one of them. <laughs> they were unwanted, and the Dead Sea Animal Shelter did not have any of them as rescues. Jesus speaks of a type of person who is like a dog in the sense that they are like scavengers who don't really value anything that is holy. Not anything. Now, pigs, on the other hand, well, not on the other hand, pigs were similarly unwanted and were unclean to the Jewish people. They were also scavengers and had no discernment as to what they ate. You wouldn't trust them for determining what is valuable and what is not. They were not pink and cuddly, singing love songs to a green hand puppet, nor were they like Wilbur, the sensitive and vulnerable runt saved from a sudden death in Charlotte's web. It's not that kind of pig. 
This is proof that one should not name their food. In the end, some people will not be receptive to the truth of God's love and his ways. They will reject holiness to a fault, and we should not waste our time continuing to share it with them. Does that shock you? Does that advice shock you? Does that go against everything you've learned and practiced? Does it dampen your sensitivities and sensibilities to say, I beat my head against the wall enough, I'm done? That's what he's saying. We interpret the idea of not wasting what is valuable before those who don't appreciate it. We're not to give what is holy to dogs, and we're not to simply discard what is valuable before pigs. Those scavengers will destroy what is valuable and may even hurt or trample us in the process. The point is clear enough. There are some who do not value the truth of God once we share it with them. Even if it has been a billion zillion times, maybe it's time to stop. Don't get angry at me yet. We'll bring this around. Don't get me wrong, we should share God's love and God's truth. No question about that, that we need to share. However, some people will not be or never be responsible, and we should practice good judgment in those situations. In some cases, it is best to move on. Scripture embraces the value of seeking to convince others of the truth. However, there is a difference between speaking to the willing versus wasting time on the hard-hearted. We need to be aware of the difference. Sometimes, such as pearls and pigs, we should know in advance that what we offer will be rejected. We've approached people that we know will reject us, yet we try. Spiritually speaking, casting pearls before swine is not an act of love towards the unbeliever. It's simply a waste of God-given resources. Here's an illustration of that very thing. We'll come back around. That's what we shouldn't do. Here's, we'll get to what we should do here in a second. Two good friends each, brought, each bought a parrot. One of, the birds, one of the birds did a lot of swearing, while the other was always... Has the battery died? Nope. Okay. Oh, thank you. Uh, where was I? One of the birds did a lot of swearing while the other was always repeating parts of Scripture. Both had acquired these habits before they belonged to the new owner. It's the gentleman who had the profane poly was much annoyed by its frequent outbursts of four-letter words. He wondered how he could cure it. Ah, he thought, if I move it to the cage with my buddy's Bible-quoting parrot, I will probably improve and may even, he may even begin to recite scripture. So he talked it over with his buddy and they put the two birds together for several days and, and did the swearing from the one stop? Uh, quite the contrary, the, bird, the pious talker was soon using profanity. He went downhill right from there. One of the hardest things to do as a believer is to discern when to continue sharing the gospel and when to stop. The gospel is much too precious to waste on those who, who want nothing more than to pull you down into the muck. 
Jesus made a similar proclamation, not that I'm speaking offhanded here, when he sent his disciples out to share the truth of God two by two. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 10, 10 to 12. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Even the disciples had to move on. Jesus set a precedent and gave us instructions for proclaiming God's truth. We must, we must continue to share the truth with others because there are so many who need to hear it and hear the truth of God's love. However, sharing or even discerning the truth today is not, an easy, is not any easier than it was 2,000 years ago. I mean, people are people today, the same they were back then. It was tough then, it's tough now. No clearer picture of this is going to be seen then in Pontius Pilate asking Jesus in John uh, 18.37, what is truth? What is ironic about Pilate's question was that I believe that he sincerely did not understand what he was hearing through all the noise and the garbage that was coming to, any, coming to him and whether it was true or not. He couldn't tell. Even with Jesus, the Son of God, standing right in front of him and not recognizing to whom he was speaking, he could not discern the truth. From truth incarnate, he couldn't. Today we live in a world that is very similar and recognizing the truth is a difficult chore. At times, right seems wrong or even worse, it's hard to distinguish between what is right and what is wrong to the point where we can no longer be sure if there is a thing called right or wrong. It is confusing. The world is confused. Sometimes church members are confused as to what is right. Depending on what we listen to and watch and fill our heads with. Today, all truth, including, including morality, is plunged toward the subjective. Truth being a matter of nothing more but personal preference and individual taste. It's a hurdle that's hard for believers to leap over. I once had a colleague who, out of the blue, asked me if I thought there was absolute truth. He was shocked when I said yes. And then I wanted to discuss with him what personal preferences were, perspectives. We can all have a perspective, and in that instance, we could all not have the truth either. So I explained to him that there is one truth, and that's in God's word and through Jesus Christ. And he was interested because he had never had that discussion with anybody else before. Then I left the company and I don't know what happened to him, but at least I think I, think I planted the seed that at least truth exists somewhere. In such a world, like in the days of the judges, everyone does what is right in his or her own eyes, but unlike in the days of the judges, this rejection of truth is not meant as a formal accusation, but, but celebrated as the ultimate expression 
of truly enlightened humanity. That position says all is fluid, doctrine is dead, and diversity reigns. Truth is only relative to one's own perspective. There is no absolute truth. That's what is out there. Unfortunately, this is happening not only in the world, but sometimes it's coming to the church. And we've seen some churches on YouTube, or maybe you have visited some, where what comes out of the pulpit is not truth, is not even scripture, is not God, is not Jesus. No talk of sin. It's all social platitudes. And that's unfortunate. We live in an age, believer or not, that prides itself on its independence, rejection of authority, and the embrace of pluralism where opinion is king and real truth is dead. And that's a problem that we all face when trying to live out scripture and sharing the good news. Fewer and fewer people believe that truth exists, including the real truth of gospel. In this topsy-turvy world, the judgment of truth by shallow but heartfelt perspectives, personal experience and opinions has replaced, seems to have replaced biblical legitimacy, with the truth being encircled with skepticism and real faith on the decline, what are the rest of us to do? Well, there are three things that we can do to maintain that position, to understand that truth exists. First, teachers and preachers must continue to preach the gospel, flat out, period. Without that, it degrades. God's mercy and sufficiency must do that and the truth and to preach that the truth does exist beyond perspective. And you who are attending and listening to this also have a responsibility to seek out and attend and to attend where those things are taught. So you have a responsibility and those up here have a responsibility to uphold Christ at all times. Second, We must call out false gospels and partial understandings of Scripture. In doing so, we can expose viewpoints that slant the interpretation of Scripture in ways that spread the agenda of those who are anti-supernatural, atheistic, agnostic, or otherwise antagonistic to the truth. If you do that and do it forthwith, you may lose friends, but you will have retained Jesus. Thirdly, this is probably, I probably should have started off with this one. We must proceed prayerfully, recognizing that it's the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the world. With God's help, we can speak truth to those people and potentially affect evil strongholds. So when I say that stop beating your heads against the wall, maybe you should in some cases, but we never stop sharing move on to someone who maybe has not heard the gospel or about Christ. In the end, though, God does not need anyone to defend his truth. God's truth can and will stand on its own. God can defend himself. 
Please be convinced that truth matters and exists well above perspectives, no matter how sincerely they're expressed. That said, we have the task of sharing Christ and praying, and praying for those who reject him. If you stop beating your head against the wall, what you can do is start praying for them. Pray that God will work in their lives somehow. Please use somebody else because I, I'm tired dressing the sores on my head from beating it against them. Despite resistance, you will find some hoot to be receptive because God has, God has not yet stopped calling people to himself. He hasn't stopped wanting people to come to him and receive salvation. Not at all. With that, I'd like to leave you with two passages of encouragement. Joshua 1.9 says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's a promise. Mark 16, 15 to 16 says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized, that's spiritual baptism. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So to you, may God have mercy on this and subsequent generations until our Lord returns. Let's pray.